Mark chapter 14 this morning. You can start turning there, verses 1 to 11. Well, good morning. My name is, is Brian, and I'm one of the pastors here at Veritas. Um, we're so glad that you're here with us. If you're not a member, like Pastor Dan said, we'd love for you to fill out a Connect card. We'd love for you to visit the Connect table out here in the Great Hall afterwards and, and learn more about our church um, well, this morning, Mark chapter 14, and I have, I have two questions for us to consider as we launch into chapter 14. And the first question is, do you know what you have? Do you know what you have? Do you know what is considered yours in life? Can you take inventory of your life and know what you have? And the second question is this, do you know how much it is worth? Do you know how much it is worth? When I was a kid, there was a shop down the road, and it sold little valuable objects. And occasionally, my mother and siblings and I would go to the shop. We'd give them $5 or so, and they'd give us a little valuable object. Sometimes my mom would pay more to get a slightly more valuable object, and, and we knew they were valuable because there was this book. And this book told us that in 50 years or so, these little valuable objects would be worth like $50, $100. It had them all written out right there. And maybe you had some of these. They were called Beanie Babies. <laughs> and of course, the book was wrong. <laughs> we thought we knew what we had, but they were worth far less than we thought. Contrast that. There's a show on TV, the old-fashioned TV, where you flip the channels. It's one of my wife's favorite shows, and you might see it very briefly before you flip past it. It's one of those shows. It's called Antiques Roadshow, and it's a show um, where there's a couple people. I, I, I saw it a couple, a couple months ago. I decided to, to watch it. I was very bored, and I watched it, and it's two people, these little five-minute segments, two people, one of them has an object, and one of them is an expert on how much random things are worth, and they bring them together, and they talk about it, and the expert tells them, this is how much your, your object is worth. And this one guy, he had a cabinet. It was just a little cabinet. It looked like just an old wooden cabinet to me. And the expert, he said, how much did you pay for this? And he said, well, back in the 70s, my family bought a cabin in Michigan for about $27,000, and inside the cabin was this cabinet. And I just always kind of liked it, so I kept it. And the expert said, well, it's a good thing you did. It's worth over $100,000, just this cabinet. And the expert knew how much it was worth. It was worth far more than the cabin itself that it was inside. Well, friends, we have this morning a book that is never faulty. And in it, we have the voice of the expert of experts. So let us pray that we might hear him this morning. Bountiful Lord, the unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. We open our mouth and pant because we long for your commandments. Turn to us and be gracious to us as is your way with those who love your name. Help us sit at the feet of the one thing needed, beholding wondrous things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand together for the reading of God's word. Mark 14, 1 through 11. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him, for they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold 
for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. Whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. So our text this morning tells a story, and it's quite a remarkable story. It's telling us that the worth of Jesus himself surpasses everything else. The worth of Jesus himself surpasses everything else. And it's actually a story within a story. And as Mark puts it here, he wants us to compare these, and we'll look at the responses of both rejecting and receiving Jesus himself. First, we're looking at rejecting the surpassing worth of Christ So Mark tells us it's just a couple days before the Passover feast when at least a couple hundred thousand Jews would be arriving at Jerusalem to slaughter their Passover lambs as they remembered together the exodus from Egypt when God had redeemed and released his people from slavery to Pharaoh by striking down the firstborn of the Egyptians but sparing those who had received his word and slaughtered and eaten a lamb instead. It was a great feast of deliverance, a birthday of sorts for this people. This was now their first month of the year. A birthday of sorts for these people that were set free. It was practiced as a memorial to remember how God had released them from slavery. And yet, the chief priests and scribes are not satisfied. They're seeking something more, murder, actually. And do you see the tragic irony? Jesus has told us that the leaders of God's people have been adding to God's law by adding traditions of men, heaping burdens on the people that they could not bear. And yet, in making themselves Pharaoh-like taskmasters, the leaders don't feel fulfilled. They feel fearful of the people. They have to sneak around without them noticing. And you have to wonder who the real master is here. In Mark 12, a couple chapters earlier, Jesus tells the parable of the tenants where he says that the religious leaders are like those who were to care for a master's vineyard while he's away, but they keep killing the master's representatives and even his son. And Mark 13, right before this, it ends with Jesus telling a parable to his disciples that they ought to be like servants diligently waiting for their beloved master to return to the house. And it almost seems like Mark is showing us that these chief priests have forgotten who the master of the house is. And now they're trying to kill him. This past Monday, a man knocked on my door and he told me that they were going to tear down the house next to ours. It had been abandoned for years, and we knew it was coming, but I was having a really hard time grasping the immediacy of his statement. I kept saying, today? And he said, yes, today. And I was like, so it's going to be started today? He's like, no, the the machine, the excavator, it's on the highway? It's coming here right now. And I'm like, so they're going to start tearing it down today. He's like, it's going to be a pile of rubble in three hours. And so I, I, I grasped that, and so we did what normal East Daytonians would do, I think. We had our kids invite their friends over to watch it. Um, 
and, and it was awesome. It, it was awesome. It was so easy. This excavator, it just pulled the house apart piece by piece. The kids kept saying it looks like a dollhouse because you could just see right inside of it all exposed. At one point, it, it put its scooper over the chimney, and it just pulled it down like a, like a Jenga tower. Um, it was awesome. The kids were squealing. And, and while most of the people in our neighborhood were, were pumped about this run-down house being torn down so that a bigger, better, newer house could be built in its place, one of the children said to me, somebody's going to be pretty sad that their house is gone. And, and of course, we explained that, that no one's living there right now. It's abandoned. But I realized that you could see this excavator as either a hero or a villain, depending on what you love most. See, imagine you're in this, and, and the master had left you, your beloved master left you in charge of his house as a steward, as a servant. But he said he'd be coming back with a bigger and better house then you'd welcome the excavator because you love the master. You can't wait for the new house to be built so that you can live in it with the master. But if you've forgotten who the master is and you start thinking you're the master and this is your house, then when the excavator shows up, you're going to feel threatened and start waging war to save what you love most. See, the whole law... It's with the temple and sacrifices, the feasts and priests, they were given by God so that he could dwell with his people in the land. He redeemed and released his people from slavery so that he could be with them in the land in that way. And we're told that the leaders want to destroy Jesus because he's not holding to their additions and traditions. They want to murder him because he's eating and healing on the Sabbath. He's not making his disciples wash and fast like them. He flipped the temple right side up. Jesus all along has been saying that he's coming not to abolish God's law, but to fulfill it in a whole new and better way where he himself is the temple and the sacrifices, the feasts and the priests. You can read Hebrews and see this. He's not getting rid of houses altogether. As a concept, he's building a new and better house where he is the cornerstone and the master himself has arrived on the scene and they want to kill him. John 1 says this, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. I ask you, fellow human beings with me, have you forgotten who the master of the house is? Do you know the maker of heaven and earth? If not, then his knock on your door will feel incredibly threatening. If you're living as though you are the master of your life, your body, time, talents, and treasure, then you will always be seeking like the priests, not fulfilled but fearful. And specifically, if you're not a Christian here, I'm, I'm so glad you're here. We're glad you're here. You're welcome to hang around and listen and consider these things. There's no rush, but you should know that as you hear about Jesus, there may be a tension in your heart and life. What you hold dear will be threatened, and this is not a reason to think Christianity is wrong. It is the way the living God throws out the old to make all things new. The kingdom of heaven is not like a lottery ticket where you give up a measly dollar and you might win $1.6 billion. The kingdom of heaven is like finding treasure buried in a field and in your joy you go and sell all you have to obtain it. It costs everything, but you gain even more. As C.S. Lewis said, God is not safe, but he is good. Do you know him? And so the religious leaders are seeking secret way to kill Jesus and then pause. Mark pauses the story of the religious leaders right here, and he wants us to hear a story about someone who didn't reject Jesus but received him instead. And so um, we have the story of the anointing of the woman, the woman's anointing. And now Matthew's account is just like Mark's, but in Luke's account, he doesn't include the story of the woman's anointing. He goes straight from the chief priest to Judas. It's told as one story. And John he includes the story of the woman's anointing, but he gives some more details about who was there, and he includes that it took place before the triumphal entry, actually six days before the Passover. Um, and so Mark says the story of the chief priests took place two days before 
um, Passover, but this anointing story, he simply says, while he, Jesus, was at Bethany, and we're told in Mark that Jesus stayed in Bethany around the triumphal entry, so it seems to make the most sense that this anointing story happened in Bethany six days before the Passover, and Mark chooses to tell the story here to emphasize something, and this is not an unnormal thing in storytelling even historical storytelling today, I watched a, a World War II documentary over the past year, and they organized the episodes not day by day, but by battle and movements, that it made more sense to, to emphasize these things together, even though they all overlapped a whole lot. So likewise, these stories aren't told chronologically. They're told specifically together to make a point. So we don't need to doubt the storyteller, but to discern what he's saying. And that brings us to the second point, receiving the surpassing worth of Christ. So here's the story Mark tells of what happened. While Jesus was in Bethany, a large feast is held. He's reclining at table, so it's probably somewhat of a large and formal feast. And an unnamed woman comes with a stone white marble-like perfume bottle. And scholars seem to think it might have been a family heirloom of sorts. It's unlikely she purchased it with her own money. It's probably been displayed in a prominent place. Maybe it has sentimental value in addition to monetary value might be a status symbol. So what scholars are speculating, it's, it's obvious to all in the room at least that it's extravagantly expensive. 300 denarii is a year's wages, a whole year's salary. That's how much this is worth. And, and we even know the contents are, are nard, which is a funny word. And it is a precious herb from India is nard. And Mark says it was pure, genuine. It's not watered down. It's, it's the real deal. And it's been made into an ointment or a perfume, and she breaks open the bottle. She probably didn't smash it, probably just broke open the neck. She opened the seal. It's permanently open. It's a one-time use because the fragrance is released. And she pours it out empty onto Jesus, covering his head and, and his whole body. And this was not all that uncommon to anoint an honored guest with oil at a feast like this. Um, you'd even anoint yourself with oil in those days. It said when you were mourning, you should stop anointing yourself. It was just a thing you did for general health and, and hygiene in those days. Um, but you would anoint an, an honored guest at a feast with, with more precious oil sometimes. But what is remarkable about this anointing is the absurd cost of this particular perfume and the controversy surrounding the object it is poured out on and Jesus' response to it all. See, some people at the feast, they started murmuring amongst themselves about how expensive it was, and she just poured it out. It's gone. A whole year's salary poured out on Jesus. They're indignant, and they're saying it out loud now, saying it to her. They're scolding her, demeaning her publicly. What a stupid waste. Obviously, you should have let us handle this. We wouldn't have screwed up something so valuable, we'd have sold the ointment and given the money to the poor. So it seems it was common around Passover to give generous gifts to the poor so that, that they could all um, participate in the Passover together. Many poor were flocking to Jerusalem to, to participate, and they would give generous gifts. So maybe they just want to give to the poor, but Jesus rebukes them. So I, I don't think their indignation is, is entirely righteous. Instead, we know Judas is involved in this, and he's been stealing, so he's upset because he's lost out on this one. But there's clearly others involved in this, and we're not given an indication that they're all thieves. We do see in Mark they're repeatedly downplaying Jesus' coming death and resurrection. Instead, they're jostling for positions of power after the coming revolution that they, they think they might be fighting in, and, and they might just be trying to solidify the poor and the people on their side. They might just love the idea of an uproar. That would be really useful right now. Or maybe they just know it's really good to give to the poor. We're, we're speculating here. But regardless, exactly what's behind the group's indignation, Jesus speaks up and defends the woman. Leave her alone. Why are you berating her? She has done a beautiful thing to me, a noble task, a good deed to me. You will always have the poor with you. You can give to them whenever your heart desires, but you will not always have me. And so Jesus here, he's quoting Deuteronomy 15 to the disciples, and, and you can look it up later, just Deuteronomy 15. It starts out saying, at the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. So every creditor who's lended to anyone in Israel 
would release them of that debt in the seventh year as a nation because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. But in verse 4 it says, but there will be no poor among you. For the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord is giving you if, if only, right? But there will be no poor among you. That's not what Jesus said. This is, that's the opposite. But there will be no poor among you if, if only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today as a people. For the Lord your God will bless you. So the Israelites were to practice generosity by releasing everyone from debt in the seventh year. So every seven years, anyone who owed anyone money would no longer owe money. But God says you shouldn't need to do this because there will be no poor among you if you obey the voice of your Lord because he will bless you in the land. He loves you. And so God says in this that poverty, generally speaking, is a result of the fall. Poverty is a symptom. Sin is the disease. This involves personal sin. It also involves corporate and cultural sin. Remember, the Pharisees were devouring widows' estates. That wasn't the widow's fault. And also just general effects of sin where work doesn't work quite right because of thorns in the ground and the sweat of the brow and all that. And, and so knowing that this would be the case, God always set up laws for his people to deal generously with the poor because he loves all of his people, poor or not. And this is one of those examples. Every seven years, the debt would be wiped clean, so no one would be a slave to debt forever. But God also spoke to the heart. Listen to this. Deuteronomy 15 goes on. If among you, one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care, lest there be an unworthy heart thought in your heart, and you say, the seventh year of the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and you cry to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin, you shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all the work and in all you undertake. And then this is where Jesus quotes verse 11, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, to the poor in your land. Whenever we want, we can do good to the poor, and we should do good to the poor, and we should want to, because our God is a generous God, and we are made in his image. We should want to be like him. But while the disciples are accusing the woman of not wanting to give to the poor, whose hearts are grudging in this story? whose hands are clenched shut. It is not the woman. Giving to the poor is a good thing. It's a godly thing even. But the disciples are missing something that the woman seems to be seeing. They're not rejecting the master of the house entirely, per se, but they're just distracted from the fact that he's right there. They're clinging tightly to the benefits of Jesus, but not to him. We're all prone to this, aren't we? I am. We're prone to value the mission over the man, the practices over the person, the logistics over the love, the doing of things over the deliverer of sinners, the vision more than the victor, serving more than the savior. Do you find yourself tight-fisted and hard-hearted over the good things you are doing in ministry or in serving others or in your job in a helping profession? Are you grumbling about how others are wasting it, scolding people for not getting the specifics right. The disciples don't know the value of what they have in Jesus himself right in front of them. Do you? If your hearts or hands are tightened around anything other than Jesus himself, even if it is the very benefits and ministry of Jesus, loosen your grip and receive him Instead, this reminds me of Ray Ortland Sr.'s dying words to his son, ministry isn't everything, Jesus is. Ministry isn't everything, Jesus is. Jesus himself is the prize worth the pursuit. It's not the grass that makes the sheep have no lack, says Psalm 23. It is the shepherd who guides them to the pasture. He is the source from whom all blessings flow, the fountain of living water. There will always be more 
really good things we can do as we want to. But there has only ever been and only ever will be one thing needed. Sit at his feet, he says. And the woman, she seems to get it at least a little more than the disciples do. Because look at Jesus' response. She's done a beautiful thing to me. She has made something out of what she had. She's anointed my body for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed, in the whole world, what she has done will be told as a memorial to her. Jesus' responses are quite stunning. It's pretty high praise. And he speaks into existence what is happening today where we are preaching the good news of Jesus and we're talking about what this woman has done. So let's do it. Let's talk about what this woman has done. Now, I think that part of the reason for Jesus' seemingly over-the-top response to this woman is because she seems to be one of the few and first people in Mark's gospel who, who start to receive Jesus fully as who he is. Many people have come to Jesus to receive blessings from him, healing and feeding and casting out demons, forgiveness. Some have even confessed faith in him as the Christ, but this woman might be one of the first to openly give what she has in sacrificial love back to him personally. Remember, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure buried in a field, a pearl of great value, and when you find it in joy, you go and sell all you have to obtain it. You joyfully sell all you have because, you have, because what you have seen is of surpassing worth to what you have already. Is that not what this woman has done? She has seen rightly that Christ himself is the treasure buried in the field, and she gives what she has to have him and be with him. Remember, what she gives is pure nard, right? And nard is only mentioned in one other place in the Bible. That's in Song of Solomon, this, this herb. And that Song of Solomon is a love poem of sorts between a bridegroom and his bride-to-be. And I'm going to read part of it. As you know, Song of Solomon, it can, it can get a little spicy. Um, so, so be warned with all these spices. It says this, Song of Solomon 4, a garden locked is my sister, my bride, a spring locked, a fountain sealed. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with all choicest fruits, henna with nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all choice spices, a garden fountain, a well of living water and flowing streams from Lebanon. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. Blow upon my garden. Let its spices flow. See, I, I warned you about all the spices, right? Did you see them all? And I, I joke because I know that it's often uncomfortable for us to go here, but you don't even have to be married to understand. Paul wasn't married, but he talks of Christ's love as a husband to his bride, the church. And likewise, Jesus calls himself the bridegroom, not to this woman, but to his people. It's an, a metaphor throughout the Old Testament. And Jesus has come now for his bride. He came for his people in love. But his own people did not receive him. They didn't know him. They didn't recognize his worth. Israel has been like a locked up garden and a fountain sealed. Mark has been emphasizing this. He's been emphasizing throughout Jesus' teaching and him lamenting the poor vision of the people of Israel. Many are physically blind. Even more are spiritually blind, even the religious leaders. But the wind is blowing, and the spices are flowing, and this woman sees more clearly the worth of Jesus, and she pours out what she has on him. She's not careless. She's clear-eyed. Imagine her standing there holding the precious perfume in its fragile flask. If she drops it, it is permanently opened once for all. So she's holding it tightly. You try and throw a, a dirty rag at her, she's just going to brush it off. You throw her a gold necklace, she's not dropping the flask to catch it. 30 pieces of silver, no way. This is a family heirloom worth a year's wages. But Jesus Christ, the pearl of great value himself, is in front of her 
and the hands open wide for embrace, and the seal breaks, and the fragrance is released. You see the sea of rejection parts, and this woman walks through on dry ground to worship her Lord. On this eve of the Passover feast, the memorial of God's deliverance of his enslaved people, does anyone look more free than this woman? Does anyone look less bound to what's all around? And now her story is a memorial. Now it's tempting, I think, to read this and want to hear, how do we do what she does? But what we need is to see what she sees. It's not her action that is so remarkable as her vision, as her estimation of the worth of Christ. She simply responds appropriately to the honored guest, word made flesh, the fullness of God, pleased to dwell in the house of Simon the leper. The radiance of the glory of God reclining at the table. By him all things were made. In him all things hold together. And she simply pours out what the preeminent provider has placed in her possession. All she has before the one thing needed. She sees the value and she sells out. Oh, to see how she sees. I think there's even more to see that this woman might not have even saw. Remember, this is a story within a story. It's a, a feast within a feast. But in that way, it's the same story. Hear it this way. It's the story of a precious vessel of surpassing worth being broken open and poured out in a blessing as it is rejected by those around it. You see it. It's a story of a precious liquid within a fragile frame that is seemingly wasted on the undeserving. Jesus is combining the anointing of the woman and the murder of the priests to create something surpassingly beautiful that we are still talking about today. Now in the Old Testament, prophets, priests, and kings were all anointed for service to the Lord, as were the temple and the vessels used in it. And while the disciples were likely hoping to anoint Jesus king in Jerusalem, and Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit in his baptism, and, and he also says that he is the fulfillment of Isaiah 61, which says, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, Jesus, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So Jesus is the great news bearer. We've seen this in Mark's gospel and he has been gaining a following of the poor and the sick and the hungry and any who need good news throughout his earthly ministry. But now he says he's being anointed for burial. Now it was normal Culturally then, to, for bodies to be anointed with spices for burial, especially among people who could afford it to honor their loved ones, and it, it delayed the smell. Um, but this particular, it's, it's odd because, well, first, he's not, he's not dead yet, right? But secondly, he ought not die at all. Death is the punishment for sin, but this body this body, Hebrews tells us, was tempted in every way that we were, yet without sin. This woman is most likely just anointing him as the honored guest. But Jesus says it means so much more. First Peter 2 tells us he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth when he was reviled he did not revile in return. When he suffered even, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body. 
on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The good news for the poor is that the news bearer is the sin bearer. Pile your sins on him. There's room in the tomb for them all. As Colossians says, he canceled the record of debt. Our sins had us in before God. Jesus is the eternal year of release for all those poor enough to receive him. He is the one sacrifice needed for sins. See, the priests, they think they're winning, right? They're glad at the end. They're going to kill him to keep all the children of Israel from wandering astray after this strange teacher and healer who mocks their traditions. So they sneak in stealthily in the dark. They got their big sticks. They find him bound in the middle of the room, and they beat him until he is destroyed. But the lights go on, and the pinata has exploded with candy, and the children are rushing in with empty hands and receiving all they can. Jesus came to be broken open and poured out for us. He is the object of surpassing worth, and he does not keep himself bottled up in heaven out of our reach. He pours himself out for us richly. The disciples wanted the ointment sold and distributed in blessings to the poor, but that would only treat a temporary symptom. Instead, Jesus himself is sold and distributed to the poor that all might become rich in him. Many did not receive him, John said, but he goes on to those who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. Are you poor? Receive Christ, and you have the inheritance of a child of God, imperishable, undefiled, kept in heaven for you. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus has redeemed us and released us, and he's done so with a purpose to proclaim the, his excellencies to the world. You see, gold, frankincense, myrrh, nard, all the riches of the earth are being brought in from faraway lands to anoint this king, and now because of his burial and resurrection, and the spirit-filled proclamation, his aroma will spread throughout the whole world. Through us, an aroma of death to some, many of our neighbors and friends will reject Jesus. Don't despair. It's an aroma of death to some, but an aroma of life to others, says 2 Corinthians 2. Who is sufficient for these things? Well, the story continues. It cuts back to Judas as we move on to the third point, responding to the surpassing worth of Christ. It cuts back, and Judas, who was one of the twelve himself, traveling around with Jesus up close, he, he goes to the chief priests, goes to them, in order to sell them what they want, which is a stealthy situation to kill Jesus. The chief priests are glad, and they give him money, which is what Judas had wanted all along. And now Judas, who was with the source of all life and breath and being, is now like the priests, not satisfied, but seeking, seeking an opportune time to sell Jesus. And this idea, of course, is absurd. Let's return for a moment to the end of Song of Solomon, the, the love poem between a bridegroom and his bride. At the end, the bride, she says this in poetry form. She says, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. How can you put a price on the love of the bridegroom? How can you put a price 
on the blood of the Son. First Peter 1 says, You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. How can anything poured out on Jesus be a waste if you know him? Were the whole realm of nature mine, says Isaac Watts. It were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. But Jesus, or but Judas, sorry, Judas, blinded by greed to the true worth of Christ, he sells the maker for money. He trades in the creator for his very creation. This is tragic, and it should be a sober warning to us that proximity to the ministry of Jesus does not mean we know Jesus as he is. Closeness does not equal clarity. The chief priests had front row seats to the ways of God and yet did not recognize him. Judas sat with the source yet sold him as a slave. But it is in Bethany, the town outside of Jerusalem, in the house of likely a former leper, Simon, who would have been as a leper the outsider of outsiders, that an unnamed woman in this time rightly esteems his worth. And Jesus commends her, and he explains that she has done what she could. She has done what she could. This word for could, it's actually the same word for have in the previous verses, where it says, you will always have the poor with you, you will not always have me, she has done what she could. It's the same word. So the sense of this sentence is something like she's done, she's made something out of what she had. She made something out of what she had. She has done what she could. There are things we have and can do something with, and there are things we don't have outside of our reach and possession that we can't do things with. Jesus simply praises her for doing what she can, making something out of what she had. And so we come back to the question we started with. Do you know what you have? And do you know what it's worth? Can you hold in... In one hand, your, your phone, right, these smartphones, they're called smart, they're designed by very smart people. They've been trying to put all our, all our life to be demonstrated on this little thing. Can you hold your phone in one hand and, and see on its little screen all the aspects of my life, the number in my bank account, my family photos, my work emails, realer.com, political news, it's all right here. And those things aren't actually in my phone, of course, but I, I trust the screen. I believe the screen, when it tells me those things really exist. Well, can I hold in my other hand God's word and trust what he says about Jesus himself? And can I weigh these two things together and know what is the worth of what I have? I want to summarize our response this way. Pray for sight and pour out your life. Pray for sight and pour out your life. Because the worth of Jesus himself surpasses everything else, pray for sight and pour out your life. I've got four suggestions to help us as we close. One, seek spiritual strength to see. It doesn't matter how well you know how to drive if the windshield is frosted over. We should pray for God to help us see Jesus clearly and know his worth. Pray by yourself. Come early to pray in the kitchen with the, the prayer team downstairs. Pray with your group, and maybe you can just start by praying Ephesians 3, where Paul prays that we would have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of God that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. You should seek spiritual strength. Pray for it that you might see him clearly. Second, fast till he comes but feast on the crumbs. Fast till he comes but feast on the crumbs. 
There's a tension in what Jesus says in this text, right? On the one hand, he says he's the most valuable, but then he says you won't always have him. And he has now died and risen and has ascended to heaven. And he will come again to dwell with us fully. He will come again, and the best is yet to come, right? But, but right now, he's not with us fully. In Mark 2, Jesus said his disciples don't fast then because he, the bridegroom, was with them. But the day will come when he's taken away, and they will fast. Fasting helps strengthen our prayer. As we give up a meal to spend time praying, it helps us remember that we do not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from God, it helps us actively loosen our flesh's grip on things as we fight to remember that these things are good, but God is the best. And similar to fasting, but I won't call it fasting, something my family has done during the Advent season over the past few years is to set a place at our dinner table for Jesus. We didn't make this up, we heard it from somewhere else, and, and so we we occasionally during Advent will set the table for everyone in our family at dinner, and then we'll set an extra plate and fork and cup for Jesus. And, and no one sits in this chair because Jesus isn't fully with us right now, but we wish he was. And that reality forces its way into my heart and into our home. Maybe you should consider fasting or some equivalent of leaving an empty seat in your life as a reminder of what you love most and to help us not be distracted from the one thing needed. But while Jesus isn't with us fully, he has given us his spirit in helping us understand his word and in driving us to pray and in the fellowship with our brothers and sisters in this church and in his sacraments, he's given us these things. And while these are but crumbs compared to Jesus himself who is the feast, we ought to be like it ants under the table who feast on these giant morsels we've been given in this time. These things help us remember and realize the worth of Christ. So fast till he comes, but feast on the crumbs. Third, pour out extravagant big things and every little thing. You probably don't have an alabaster flask. I'm sure you don't have nard. You don't have Jesus fully present in your home so what does this look like? Well, we don't know how the woman came into possession of the perfume, but we do know she simply used it how it was meant to be used. Loving Jesus more than the ointment didn't mean destroying the ointment. She didn't set a fire and, and show everyone how much she loved Jesus more than it by, by burning the oil because it was stupid. She she used it for him. That's what loving him more than it meant. She meant using it rightly for him. God made nard to smell good, I'm, I'm assuming, and, and for humans to turn it into ointment, and it's good to use it rightly. And while we ought to make sacrifices to God, remember that Hebrews tells us that we don't need to sacrifice things to make up for our sins. Jesus has done that once for all, but instead it says in Hebrews 13, through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. To start acknowledging that Christ is the master and not being distracted, we should praise him together and thank him for all good things, acknowledging that all things are from him with grateful hearts. Now, some of us might have extravagant big things that we want to do. We should do them. Maybe some of us should sell all we have and move across the world to be missionaries to unreached Muslim people groups. That would not be a waste of what you have. It would be a good thing. If you want to do that, you can. Some of us have loads of money. We want to give big gifts. That's great, too. We also shouldn't overlook the fact that giving every little thing every single day is the biggest thing we can give. It means we work in our careers and raise our children as people who have received skills and work and bodies and children from our good and generous God. Our homes and bank accounts and friendships and bodies are all good gifts from him that we should regularly praise and thank him for and use them well out of love for him by loving others with them. So many of you are doing this incredibly well. 
You're, you're striving to live your life under God's rule, receiving everything as good gifts, offering them back by serving others sacrificially. You're trying to sacrificially give all aspects of your life to God and loving him and others. Keep going. Don't grow weary. He's worth it. Pour out extravagant big things and every little thing. And then fourth and lastly, because the worth of Jesus himself surpasses everything else, let Jesus himself defend and commend you. There's a lot of fear in this passage. And there are people in our lives who will think what we're doing with our lives is a waste. You might just know it by how they act around you. You might know it by what they don't say around you. Or they might very well say it out loud and scold you. But if you're doing what you're doing because what you love most is Jesus himself, then be assured that he himself will defend and commend you. It will be in his timing, not yours. It will be in his ways, not yours. But if in the end you have given all you had and are abandoned by all others and are left with Jesus alone, you will not be left seeking. You will be satisfied. Are you overcome by accusations that you are wasting your life? that you don't know what you're doing, that you're screwing it all up by seeking to follow Jesus, hear his voice to this woman. We're still talking about it today because his words don't pass away. Hear his voice to this woman. Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Hear the voice of the master to his servants who simply used what he had given him. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Let's pray together. O oh, joyful master, Heavenly Father, we pray that according to the riches of your glory, you would grant us to be strengthened with power through your spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that being rooted and grounded in love, we would have strength to comprehend with the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Oh Lord, set us as a seal upon your heart. For your love is as strong as death. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.